five. series through the Gospel of Matthew. This is message number 10 and entitled Fools in Anger. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 to 26. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. So as Jesus transitions into the real body of this teaching here in Matthew 5 through 7, we saw how in verses 17 to 20 that he explained what he is and is not doing. And so there were some that apparently thought that he was undoing the Old Testament through his words and through his actions. And that fact is informative, uh, meaning that his ministry was different enough that some had that thought, that to some it seemed as though he's undoing the Old Testament. So if Jesus was merely calling Israel back to the purity of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant law, in other words, if that was his message and his mission, and and he just joined that with some healing miracles and such, he would have really seemed more like one of the old prophets, calling Israel back to their faithfulness, back to the, back to the law, back to all of these things. And, it, and really, when you think about it, the Pharisees had arisen from just that sort of effort, an effort to, let's call Israel back to the purity um, of the law and, and the purity of, of, of religion and all, all these sort of things. And if, and if that was Jesus' message, it seems very unlikely that they would have objected to him or that they would have thought that he was in some way undoing the Old Testament. And it kind of seems when you think about it that John the Baptist really seemed more that way, more like one of the old prophets. He was certainly one of the, the last of the Old Testament prophets. Um, and I don't see that John was seen as undoing the Old Testament, the law of Moses, but that certainly was a charge against Jesus. Well, Jesus stated plainly that was not his purpose, nor was that what he was doing. On the contrary, he said that he came, and using that language is probably a subtle messianic reference when you look at the Old Testament. The coming one um, was one of those references to the Messiah in the Old Testament. Probably a subtle messianic reference, I came to fulfill the law. But nevertheless, he came to fulfill the Old Testament, he said, to the least letter and stroke and dot of what was written. That was his mission. And that's also why he gave new law. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. So Jesus also clarified 
the sort of righteousness that he was teaching and commanding. It's the sort of righteousness, he said, that without which you will not enter the kingdom. Now, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was the sort of righteousness that really didn't go beyond the set standard. And so the argument here is not about the accuracy of their standard. The argument here is not, about, not really about whether or not that they met their standard. But the fact that they did not see the relational righteousness. This begins with relationship with God and his Messiah through repentance and faith. And apart from that, no one has right standing with God. And from that right relationship with God flows to brother, flows to neighbor, flows even to enemy, as we see here in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. So it is a right conduct toward God and others that comes from a right standing with him. Now, if Jesus said that he did not come to deconstruct the Old Testament, but what he was doing was to fulfill the Old Testament, then should we expect him to give new law? In other words, I'm asking, if that's what Jesus is doing here, then is that consistent with what we see in the Old Testament? Well, Moses told Israel way back in in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that they were to expect another prophet that was like him, like Moses, who it is of Moses it was said that he was unlike any other prophet that God spoke with him face to face. But there's going to be another prophet like Moses, in fact, greater than him. And he says, to him you are to listen. So Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 19. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. According to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. So Moses was the prophet of Israel, the one that God spoke with face to face, the one that received the law and in turn gave that old covenant law to the people of Israel. And God says, I'm going to raise up another prophet and you are to hear him. In other words, he's going to command you in my name and you are to listen. God confirmed this of Jesus when you think of uh, passage like Matthew chapter 17 and verse 5, while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And we think about the ending of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, this is Jesus speaking, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. 
And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Well, the Old Testament also prophesied of a coming lawgiver. In fact, in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10 that we looked at not too awful long ago, we saw that there would be a lawgiver that would come from Judah. That the servant of Yahweh would, would speak the law, would establish judgment in the earth when he comes in, in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 4. And also in the future restoration, the law, we are told, will come from Zion. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 3 and Micah chapter 4 and verse number 2. And so also in the passages concerning the new covenant, like Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 32, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant, this is the old covenant, that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. Now, the writer of Hebrews quotes these verses from Jeremiah chapter 31 in Hebrews chapter number 8 and refers of them to Jesus and the fact that he has, he is made a, a priest after a new and better covenant according to better promises and so on. Paul also confirms that there's a contrast between old covenant law and the law of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 21. So my point is that the coming of Christ as lawgiver is fulfilling the Old Testament, especially in terms of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The writer of Hebrews there at the end of chapter 8 speaks about how by saying he would make a new covenant, he makes the other one old. And that that is old is to be done away. It's, it's It's ready to perish and to be put away. Now, Jesus said he was not deconstructing the Old Testament He wasn't uh, tearing it down. He wasn't canceling it. He wasn't changing it. He wasn't reinterpreting it. He wasn't transforming it. He wasn't doing anything else to the Old Covenant other than fulfilling it. That's what he was doing. So in chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, which is what we're looking at this evening, we turn to the first of a series of six contrasts with the Old Covenant law. And these are noted by a particular formula, saying something along the line of, you have heard or it has been said, and followed with a quotation from the Old Covenant law, and then Jesus saying, but I say unto you. Now, these are contrasts. In other words, the, I guess the proper terminology is that it's an adversative conjunction. You know, it's showing a contrast, but I say unto you. Now, these are contrasts, but that doesn't mean mutually exclusive. The new covenant law of Christ may forbid or it may permit some of the same things as the old covenant law, but that doesn't mean that they are not distinct. It doesn't, in other words, it doesn't mean that they are the same thing. Like the Old Covenant is not transitioning into the New Covenant. And the fact that they may both have prohibitions against certain things, may have permissions of of certain things or commanding certain things um, that are alike or similar doesn't mean that these are not still distinct. For instance, in the passage we're looking at tonight, it's going to 
bring up the law, thou shalt not kill. The law, the old covenant law forbids murder. Now, when you, when you say, or someone says, we are not under the old covenant law today, I, I've just simply lost count of the number of times I've heard someone say, oh, so it's okay to murder people. We're not, you say we're not under the law, it's okay to murder people. And I've started responding, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. No, I haven't, but that's what sarcastic Jeff wants to say. But I try to keep him at bay. I have to do a lot of, a lot of battle with him. But anyway, I get that question. Oh, well, so it's okay to, to murder people then because you say we're not under the law. Murder was a sin from the very creation. Before the old covenant law was ever even given, it was a sin for Cain to murder his brother Abel long before the law was ever given. Murder was prohibited in God's covenant with Noah and with mankind in Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 11. So that doesn't mean then that God could not also prohibit it under the old covenant much later, which he did. And that did not mean then that the the covenant that he made with Noah and mankind ceased to exist because of that or that they somehow uh, morphed together into one uh, homogenous mass or something. No, they were distinct covenants and yet they prohibited some of the same things. And so this is similar when we are looking at the law of Christ. So as Jesus gives his law, he does lay it alongside an old covenant commandment. Now it's clear that there's agreement. It's clear that there's agreement and certainly the same spirit of law that we see between the two, but they are not one and the same. So as we look at this passage, we see in verses 21 and 22 where Jesus talks about murder and anger, and in verses 23 to 26 where Jesus talks about reconciliation and warns of of the consequences um, of these sins. So we're going to start here. Let's start with verse number 21. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. So six times in chapter 5, Jesus uses this formula. You have heard, it has been said, But I say unto you. So that comes in verse 21, verse 27, verse 31, verse 33, 38, and 43. So we have to understand this formula contextually if we're going to understand the rest of this chapter. So the phrase, you see it there, by them of old time. So you have this opening phrase. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. So that phrase, everything after the word said there, by them of old time, is translated. That whole phrase is translated from one word in the Greek, archaios, in fact. And it is the word for old or for ancient. And that is the way that it is used in every place that it appears. It is used here as an adjective. It is in the plural. And it is describing some people or persons, um, but who? That's the question. Who is being described by this word? So if you look at this, obviously it, it sounds a certain way. You have heard that it was said by them of old time. In other words, the them that's being spoken of, whoever they are, and we're not identified them yet, but the them that's being spoken of are the ones that said this. That's the way that phrase sounds as it's rendered in English here. 
So I want to give you eight different translations for the opening of this verse. And listen very carefully to what you hear. You have heard that it was said to those of old. You have heard that the ancients were told. You have heard that the ancients were told. That is two different translations, by the way, but they are identical in that place. You have heard that it was said to those of old. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors. You have heard that our fathers were told. And this last one is Young's literal translation. Ye heard that it was said to the ancients. Again, very um, economical and, and very literal in, in that translation. So if you, if you notice, all of those translations, these eight different translations, are all similar in that they translate this word as an indirect object receiving the action, which in fact it is in the Greek. That's accurate. The them that is mentioned in this verse They're not the ones doing the telling. They are the ones who were told. Now, as far as why, we have like that word by that's in there, by them. Again, that's not in the Greek. This phrase all comes from this this one word describing ancient people. Um, Why it says by, I I really don't know. I didn't didn't find out much information about that. But again, if you look at at every, uh, even the Geneva, older than the King James translation. If you look at every translation, they translate as an indirect object and essentially say the same thing, that you've heard what was told to the ancient ones, to the old ones. So clearly, Jesus uses this term and this expression to refer to the giving of the law through Moses. That's what he's talking about. It was said to them. He's talking about the giving of the law. And he's talking about Israel, the fathers, the the ancient ones, the, the people that received to whom these words were spoken. And then he quotes, Thou shalt not kill, from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13, that's repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 17. That's the command that was given. And then he also quotes, saying, or, or references, you might say, whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment, Exodus chapter 21, verse 12, and Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 17. That's the consequence of breaking or transgressing this commandment. So what Jesus is referring to is the fact that the old covenant law forbid murder and prescribed the penalty for one guilty of murder. Now, when he talks about judgment here, he's not talking about final judgment. He's not talking about the great white throne or anything like that. But, but by speaking of judgment, he's saying that you would be liable to judicial trial and punishment. So the old covenant law, uh, they appointed um, judges and, and all of those sort of things, and they had a, they had a, a legal system. It sort of uh, eventually was, was was you know reformed into the into the Sanhedrin and, and the system they had um, at the day that Jesus was speaking, but they had a series um, of judges and and sort of a a, uh, a level of of courts you might say sort of like the Supreme Court and so which what the Sanhedrin would um, would fulfill. And he says that you if you killed if you murdered, then the penalty of the law 
was that you were to be judged in a trial by two or three witnesses condemned and then to be executed. And so Jesus is saying that the old covenant law said that thou shalt not kill, and, and whoever does will be liable to judicial punishment that the law prescribed. Now we proceed in verse 22. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a call shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. So now Jesus is here legislating against anger. In other words, he's laid this alongside the old covenant law, prohibition of murder. And Jesus is certainly in no way condoning murder here. He is prohibiting anger and hatred, particularly toward your brother. So what he's saying, and if you look at the consequences, you notice that, that there is a similarity. There's a parallel here. He, says, he said, the law said, you shall not kill it, and if you kill there are these consequences. And Jesus is saying, I'm saying if you're angry with your brother without a cause, and, so, and there are also consequences. So in other words, he's putting it in parallel. So he's extending beyond the act of murder, making one liable to judgment. And the issue here, it is anger. But we have to understand it's, it's not, it's not a, a, a mere annoyance. It's not just you know, being upset or um, even irritated. Uh, and also the mention of brother is quite significant in what Jesus is saying. Now he's going to go on in this passage to speak of adversary, and then later in the chapter we'll get neighbor, we'll get enemies. But brother, what does Jesus mean by saying being angry with a brother? Well, now one way to take it would, would be, mean that, well, he's simply talking about a fellow countryman, a fellow um, a fellow uh, member of, of the nation of Israel, you know, a descendant of, of Abraham and so on. But actually it's stronger than that, and it actually makes the sins more serious. In other words, when Jesus says brother, I believe that he's talking about a fellow believer. He's going to talk about neighbors later. He'll talk about adversaries later. And in other places, as we go on through the Gospels and the teachings of Jesus, we're, we're going to get other things. In other words, Jesus is not saying everything there is to say here in this one little paragraph. But there's going to be many other things to say, just like when you read in the Old Testament. I mean, everything isn't contained in just a few verses um, in Exodus chapter number 20. There's, there's a whole lot um, that is written there. But if we look at what things like Jesus said later, like John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And that's not the only thing Jesus had to say about that, but he's clearly talking between brothers and sisters in faith is who Jesus is talking about. First John chapter 4 and verse 20, the apostle John said, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, and he's not talking about his fellow countrymen, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? So it is significant that Jesus says that if you're angry with your brother without a cause, that you are liable to judgment. And these terms that he uses, calling, it's beyond just name-calling or, or being insulting, raka and, and fool. 
he's actually speaking of despising, scorning, slandering your brother. Now, the use of raka, which is an Aramaic term, as I understand it, which essentially is, is equivalent to calling someone, somebody empty-headed uh, or something like that, and fool, obviously we know the word fool, but this refers to despising your brother, deeming them unworthy of the kingdom, unsaved or even unsavable. In other words, it's, it's the sort of despising of your brother that, that sees, I am better than you. I am acceptable to God and you are not, though this is a fellow believer. Certainly something that we need to pay close attention to. And of course, at the end, he says, shall be in danger of hell fire. And I think we see the seriousness. And again, if you put what the Apostle John wrote about this, he said, if if a man says he loves God, but he has this kind of hatred toward his brother in Christ, one who is supposed to be a fellow believer, a brother or, or a sister, he's a liar. He doesn't have the love of God in him. So obviously, again, a very, very serious situation. Now, as we get to the next part, verses 23 to 26, Jesus is is going to urge reconciliation. So looking at verse 23, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee. Now, Jesus, in these these, um, last verses of this paragraph, he, he uses two different examples to command that we should seek quick reconciliation with our brothers and sisters in Christ in particular, but not just them. Both of these examples speak to urgency, and as you will see that he emphasizes. Now, the first example he gives is of one bringing an offering to the altar and remembering that he has offended his brother. Now, again, we have to remember where we are in time. In other words, the old covenant is not going to be done away until after the once-for-all new covenant sacrifice of Christ has been made and he has risen from the dead before all of that is fulfilled. So they are still under old covenant obligations. They would be bringing their offerings He's not commanding the bringing of offerings here. If you pay attention to what he's saying in the, in the, in the context, he's not commanding the bringing of offerings. He's use, using this as an example. So you are, you are doing your religious duty, in other words. And you remember, presumably this would be some situation that is a result of the anger that he had just previously mentioned. And here's what he says to do, verse 24 Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. Jesus says very clearly, leave the gift and go be reconciled to your brother. Another way to put this, if we think about some of the terms that we looked at this morning, peace with your brother or sister in Christ is heavy. It's, it's heavy. It's of great consequence. It's of great importance. In fact, in this case, it's heavier 
than bringing an offering for the altar. Now, particularly in light of the fact that this was going to be done away, again, after the once-for-all new covenant sacrifice of Christ was made, this offering and such would be, would be done away and would be unnecessary. But nevertheless, he says, go be reconciled. And notice he uses that term first. First. Be reconciled first. Well, if you think about it, putting the offering first was just the sort of righteousness that was along with the Pharisees' standards. Well, there would be nothing greater than putting that offering on the altar. That's the epitome of righteousness in their mind. But Jesus says, no, leave that. First, go be reconciled to your brother. Now, when you think about the way that this highlights urgency, it's easy for us to kind of read that and not think too much of it. Bringing an offering to Jerusalem was a considerable amount of trouble to go to. Happened a couple times or so a year. Um, those from the further reaches, particularly some of those from the regions in Galilee that he's, that he's speaking to, you could be talking 180 miles or, or 80 or 100 miles, rather. So, I mean, a long journey to make it to Jerusalem for an offering and you would either have to take the offering with you or you would have to sell the animal or or whatever and and get the money and then travel to Jerusalem and then once there buy it at an inflated price um, for the animal for the offering and all this all this sort of thing it took time for this journey and it not only that but it took time waiting and when you got to Jerusalem not only from the land of Israel in that day but also from from other nations round about, the, the Jews, the scattered Jews. Remember how on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached, there was Jews from all different nations that were in Jerusalem because of the feast. So this could be a very, a very long journey, a very time-consuming journey, waiting for your, for your offering to be, to be made, uh, all these offers that, that were coming. So in other words, it wasn't a light thing to be ready for your offering to be offered on the altar and then to leave at that point and to go make peace with your brother. That wasn't a light thing. It's, it's, it's what we would call rather inconvenient to do things that way. And again, when you think about it in terms of, of, a, of, a, of the, the Pharisaic mentality, that offering was much more important. Oh, I, I, I need, I've got to make this offering and, and then I can go, um, you know, talk to this other person or, or do whatever I need to do. And, and Jesus says, leave it there and go and make peace with your brother. It is that urgent. And that is the point that Jesus is stressing, the urgency. And by that, the weight of the matter of peace and reconciliation among brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 25, he gets to the second example. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Now the word for adversary means opponent, or even accuser, um, and could mean enemy. Typically, it referred to someone Um, opposing you in a lawsuit, bringing a lawsuit against you. 
Now the assumption here is like the previous that your adversary has some legitimate complaint against you. When Jesus says you remember that your brother has ought against you, it's you have given offense in some way. Now that may have been intentional, it may have been unintentional, but, but you're aware that you've given offense to someone else in some way. Well, here the case is you, you, have, an, you have an adversary. You've got an opponent even at law as, as is plain um, as he goes on because the result can be thrown into being thrown into prison. Uh, coming before the judge and all that. So the assumption is that your adversary has some legitimate complaint against you. When you look at the context, it's ob- there's obviously the issue of some sort of financial consideration. There's an unpaid debt, um, or it could be a defrauding of payment case. It could be that, that maybe you owed the, the person for some kind of work or something, or whatever that is, but there's, there's some kind of financial um, dispute here, and, and you that he's talking to seems to be liable in, in some way. And he says, agree with him quickly. And that word means at once. It means without delay. And being in the way, while you are in the way with him, means that you're, you're essentially you're on your way to, to court, as we might say today. And Jesus is urging reconciling right away or else suffering the consequences of the full penalty. He says in verse 26, Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thin, so thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. So, in other words, you, you will be found guilty and you will be thrown into prison until whatever the debt is, is worked off. And the uttermost farthing, as I understand, would refer to, I think, the second smallest coin um, of, of the day, of exchange for the day. I saw some calculations, how accurate these are, I can't say, but I did see some calculations that said this would be equivalent. Um, if, you, if you were considering a day's wage, eight hours work at a day's wage, this would be equivalent to about seven minutes worth of work out of an, an eight-hour day. In other words, the point, though, that Jesus would be making is, is that you will pay in full down to the very last penny, we might say, today. So reconciling here then would certainly involve payment of the debt, somehow settling the dispute, whatever that, whatever that, that was, and, and obviously in terms of being the one uh, most likely in the wrong or, or um, guilty needing to reconcile. So as we think about how, how we're starting out here, as we're getting into the body of this teaching and Jesus is comparing to uh, starts out with this comparison of the Old Covenant law, but very quickly you can see that he's, he's going beyond that. And so Jesus here lays out what we might consider progressive consequences of improper anger and lack of, of self-control. Now the consequences might seem anticlimactic, building up to a prison sentence, which is where you end in, in verse 26, being thrown into a debtor's prison until that debt is, is worked off. However, we saw the, the warning of hellfire back in verse 22, and really as we, as we read through this, we have to remember, uh, you know, he talked about previously, you know, not even entering into the kingdom of heaven and, and greater judgments always looming. It's always looming. It's always there. It's never totally out of the picture. But think of this in terms of what Jesus has already taught. If the aim, and I'm talking particularly about here in Matthew chapter 5 as he has started this teaching, and again, this is all one long body of teaching that Jesus is giving. If the aim 
for the one who loves righteousness, the one who is a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. If the aim in this present world is being salt and light, then we are to avoid whatever might strip the salt of its savor or whatever might cover up and hide the light that we are to shine. So Jesus commands here essentially, be at peace with your brother. And then by mentioning the adversary, well, that could be brother, but but could even also be more than that. So he could extend this to a, to a more general term. At first, be at peace with your brother and be at peace with the world. And really, when you think about it, Paul and Peter echo this later um, in the epistle. So Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, wrote, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 15, he warned the churches of Galatia, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. And then think about Peter writing in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, if you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. So think about what Jesus said there in, in the Beatitudes, that if, you, if you're persecuted and you are suffering for righteousness' sake and you are suffering for Christ's sake, then you are glorifying God through that suffering. Notice what Peter goes on to say. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief, which both would be present here in terms of not paying money that is owed and um, being angry without a cause and so on, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. So all the religious offerings and observances in the world will not outweigh or make up for wretched relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ, nor even with those of the world. Now, obviously, the reality of suffering and the reality of, of persecution means you're, you're not always going to be at peace with everyone. It's not, it's not going to happen. But Peter says when that's the case... If you're suffering for righteousness' sake, he said, then God's glorified. In other words, you're being salt, you're being light. But if you're suffering as, as, a, as a busybody, if, in other words, if, if, if you're guilty and you're thrown into that debtor's prison, well, that light has been covered up with the basket. The, the salt has lost its savor. You're, you're not causing others to see and glorify God on your behalf. So no amount of offerings or religious practices or personal piety or any, no amount of those things is going to outweigh that sort of, of just wake of wretched relationships that oftentimes 
many people leave behind them. And remember also that in verse 9, earlier in this chapter, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Thank you.